Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. This is your host, Stephen Siegel, and I'm coming to you here from San Diego today, uh, where we'll be profiling from Houston, Alexei Golubyev, who is the author of a new book published with Cornell University Press called The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia. So we'll have him uh, today on New Books History and New Books Russian and Eurasian Studies uh, and New Books Anthropology. I want to get started with, um, with Professor Golubiv today. Um, thanks, Alexei, for joining us, first of all. Hello, Stephen. And I should uh, say that I'm a big fan of the New Book Networks. Well, thank you. We really appreciate that. And uh, we're growing. Um, in We've passed the million mark on a monthly basis. And during COVID, I've uh, been interviewing a lot of people. So I'm really thrilled to have you here today. A little bit about um, Alexei in his bio. So he is a scholar of Russian history with a focus on social and cultural history of the 20th century. He has his Kandidatskaya, his candidate degree from the from Petrozavodsk University, 2006, and he holds a PhD from the University of British Columbia in Canada, 2016. Since 2017, he has worked as an assistant professor at the Department of History, University of Houston. In 2020, 2021, he serves as a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, Harvard University. Alexei's first book, the Search for Socialist El Dorado, Michigan State University Press, 2014, was co-authored with Irina Takala, and it focused on Finnish-American and Finnish-Canadian immigrants to Soviet Russia during the Great Depression. Uh, so today we'll be talking about things and the things of life, materiality in late Soviet Russia, 2020. So let me start with the first question for, for Professor Golubyev. How on earth does a Karelian wind up in Houston? And, and what is your intellectual journey, your, your putishistvia, if you will, um, from one place to another? How did you become interested in, in this book and then end up publishing it? This is a really teleological question. So tell us your destiny. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a historian of 20th century Russia, <clears throat> although on quite a number of occasions my research interests drove me to venture into Northern Europe and transatlantic history, and my latest project also drives me into Eastern Europe and East Germany in particular. Thematically, I work in social and cultural history and since re- recently history of knowledge. And as you mentioned, I have my first degree from Petrozavodsk University and After getting it, I worked there uh, for five years at the Department of History of Northern Europe as a kind of junior contract faculty member, and hence the northern uh, vector in some of the chapters of the book that we're going to discuss. Uh, 
But after five years, I realized that I was in some sort of an intellectual dead end for myself. And this was when I decided to pursue a doctoral degree at the University of British Columbia. After that, I had a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Toronto, a Banting postdoctoral fellowship. And that was a really productive year for my current research and for my new project, because as you probably know, to to a scholar of Russian history, the Roberts Library is what the Cave of Thieves was to Alibaba, right? The Cave of (laughs) Treasures. Uh, My understanding of history or of the historian's craft, to use Mark Bloch's uh, phrase, was shaped by historical and cultural anthropology. I was reading a lot of that in uh, graduate school, as well as by the Russian formalist school. And I hope we can kind of touch upon that a little bit. And the main thing that I learned from historical anthropology, as well as from kind of my own understanding of history, because we all live with history, right, in one way or another, was uh, how incommensurable were the historical narrative, those narratives that I learned at school or as an undergraduate student or the narratives that I am working with now as a professional historian, how incommensurable they are with the lived historical experience of people, right? There is an immense gap between uh, the wealth of historical experience in society and its rather narrow appropriation in historical narratives. And so that drove my intellectual curiosity that Uh, led me to engage with oral history very early in my academic career. And that eventually kind of led me to, in this project, materiality studies and material history. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about your philosophical background, because I see this book as a deeply philosophical intervention. You talk a lot about ontology and, um, epistemology and elemental materialism, which is a kind of canonical phrase, tihini materialism. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, I mean, how did you conceive of ri- writing a book that is both, let's say, anthropological and philosophical, not, not simply in an ideological way, but coming out of the, the Marxist tradition or coming out of the Marx-Engels tradition back to the pre-Socratic philosophers, and, and how do you do that, let's say, and, and define and define elemental materialism in a Soviet culture and context? Well, this is a very complex question, and I think I best answer it if I describe how I came to this project, right, in general. Uh, and in some ways, this project was a rather spontaneous reaction to my readings in the doctoral program. But in some others, it's being a long-time interest of, of mine. And I think it all started when I was interviewing Finnish immigrants for my first book. I was interviewing people who moved from the United States and Canada during the Great Depression to build socialism in uh, Soviet Russia, in Soviet Karelia. And in, I was doing that in the mid-2000s when some of them were still alive. And several of them told me that they self-identify as Soviet people. And this mm. statement stuck with me because, as you might know, at that time, that epithet, Soviet, 
was often used as a derogatory uh, term, right? In a derogatory right. meaning, like savok, for example. Right. To refer to people who still stick to old-fashioned ways of thinking. And there they were, people who had very interesting biographies, who were very interesting people, who were successful professionals in their field, who became successful despite the difficult circumstances that they went through. People with American background or Canadian background, people who kind of were of the Finnish ethnicity, who spoke Russian in their families, and they self-identified as Soviet people. On some other occasions, I heard very similar statements from people from different backgrounds, right? Self-identifying themselves as Soviet people. And I guess this question uh, was in the back of my mind, even as I was uh, studying some other research themes and topics. So in my doctoral program, when I started about this question, which is, by the way, uh, one of the most interesting and vibrant questions in our discipline, right? The question of Soviet subjectivity and selfhood, the question of what made Soviet people Soviet. When I started reading all those works that take on this question, I found that the debates, uh, they focus primarily on language as a function of ideology, right? The language that produces Soviet selfhood. Right. And I think the trend was set by Stephen Kotkin, uh, with his famous argument that the Soviet civilization shaped the Soviet people, first of all, by teaching them how to speak Bolshevik. And then, of course, there were later resonant works by Eagle Helfin, by Johan Helbeck, by Alexei Yurchak. And all of them focused on language, and it was rather logical because language structures our very relationship with the surrounding reality. But for me... The focus on language and the focus on the dominant discourse uh, did not explain an astonishing diversity of historical forms of Soviet selfhood. You see, I work in the period after Stalinism, and uh, for me it was always kind of a very interesting research question. Uh, if we compare post-Stalinist society with, let's say, an apartment block, right, with one of those Khrushchevka, that were built in abundance since the late 1950s. So how could it be that in one apartment block, uh, in one stairwell, and maybe even on the same block of stairs, there could live people like uh, communards, uh, the people who were uh, very enthusiastic about socialism, but who were equally frustrated with the Communist Party, and who were trying to come up with pedagogical theories of how to build communism from below without communist party. Uh, Daria Dimke published a couple of years ago a wonderful book about one of these pedagogical utopias in the 1960s. So how could they live on the same lining of stairs next to dissidents and next to loyal bureaucrats who would take for granted every word in the official discourse? Or another lining of stairs could have advocates of the modernist urban lifestyle living next to ruralists, right? Living next to environmentalists, right. next to the people who did their best for the environmental protection and architectural preservation. Or yet another landing of stairs would have Russian nationalists living next to people fascinated with Western culture. And then there would be hundreds of thousands of people who performed international friendship and solidarity as pen pals 
or as members of different uh, social international organizations. Or, again, yet another landing of stairs would have UFO and poltergeist hunters living next to <laughs> hardcore materialists. Right. And above and below them, there would be a loyal Orthodox or Islamic congregation. Uh, what yeah. do you do with this diversity, right? My take on this was that we can't really explain it only through language. We can't just reduce it to language. And this is how I came to that particular problem that I am exploring. Uh, my The early subtitle of this book, before the marketing department of Cornell kind of uh, suggested that I should change it, was how late Soviet things made late Soviet people. And it is a little bit straightforward, but I think it kind of conveys well what drove my curiosity in this project. Uh, what I wanted to show here in this particular book is that people's selves are a result of material and not just linguistic production. And this is how I came to this particular kind of problem, right? The ability of right. things and spaces to organize Soviet society and Soviet bodies. Right. And I think about your um, metaphor of a building, because a after all, this, is, this has become uh, the giant epic mode of Slyoskin and others mm -hmm. were, were mm -hmm. trying to write about the Soviet experience and Soviet subjectivity. But you, you have this very innovative attention to, I would say, minutiae and details w without fetishizing those details and, and looking at spaces of silence, which are, are penetrable, but also kind of inscrutable. Um, and, and that includes the, the Soviet stairwell chapter, which I want to get to. Um, it's mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. Um, let me ask you about your organization for the book. So you have six chapters together. And, and I know that some of these were articles because I had read your articles previously, but um, could you tell our listeners about how you, you organized your chapters and chose each of these subjects to explain the period after Stalinism? Yeah, sure. Uh, the structure, I think it's derivative of my method and my sources. And uh, I mean, if we were to speak in very general terms, there are two basic ways of how we can write a history book or a history anything. One way would be to go from the archive, right? You find an interesting collection of documents and you go from there. And my first book uh, on socialist El Dorado was a very typical example of this method. The second one is when you go from the problem. You have a problem, you identified a gap in our knowledge, and then you kind of hunt for sources, right? You go after various, in my case, I went after various manifestations of how, how the material shaped the social in the Soviet context. And it meant that I did not have a single story, right? The overarching structure was theoretical. And so each chapter can be read as a separate article. And as you mentioned, two of them were published as separate articles, which has its advantages and its disadvantages. In terms of the organization of the book, the main disadvantage was, of course, <clears throat> that it was much harder for me to come up with a structure that would connect these separate chapters together. And so I was thinking a lot about it. And at some point it came to me 
that my material can be interpreted as some sort of material coordinates of the Soviet self, right? How things right. help people locate themselves in time and space vis-a-vis the historical past and progress, axis X, if you uh, want, and vis-a-vis social and national space, axis Y. In other words, I focused on those material objects which pushed Soviet people to occupy different positions in regards to the historical process and to social space. And that's why my book has two sections, two parts, one dealing with uh, different temporalities of socialism as manifested in and through objects. And the second section deals with the spatial organization and uh, spatial imagination in late Soviet society. So, and then goes go different chapters, right? So the first chapter looks at the grand technological objects of socialism, like space rockets or huge power plants, the things that encapsulated the social visions of the techno-utopian future that were associated with the effective economy of pride uh, in Soviet society. And then, of course, pride can always flip into shame. Uh, when society or things fail to perform properly. The second chapter, again, dealt with historicities, but now with the past, with history. I was looking at scale models, uh, especially at their collections, that, as I argued, objectified nationalist understanding of Soviet history. And then goes the third chapter, in which I also look at the historical objects, but in this case, uh, heritage architecture and historical landscapes that also reflected and stimulated nation-oriented interpretation of Soviet history, but this time in a more, you know, romantic, uh, right. romantic nationalist version of it. And then I moved to spatial imagination and how uh, objects help us conceptualize and navigate space around us. And I also move from the first chapter because it deals with history. It deals with the educated class. So the category of class is very important for my book. The second chapter, the second part of the book moves to more marginalized sections of Soviet population. And in chapter four, for example, I look at the transit spaces of socialist neighborhood. Neighborhoods, I kind of uh, ponder over the problem why these spaces that were planned as spaces of transit, how they managed to start accumulating people, how they managed as social condensers by bringing people together. And in doing that, by making these spaces scary for some people, but like their own spaces, live spaces for some other people. The fifth chapter looks at iron at the weightlifting equipment uh, and new understandings of masculinity that emerged in the late Soviet context. And the last chapter, in the last chapter, I look at the Soviet television set. And in this sense, when I was look, thinking about the uh, structure of the book, I was also thinking of it in terms of different materials, right? The basic, the primary materials. So the first chapter is more theoretical in less material than other chapters, but beginning with chapter two, I have like this hierarchy of materials. Chapter two is about plastic. Chapter three is about wood. Chapter four is about concrete. Chapter five is about iron. And the last chapter is about 
Ethere. Yeah, and let, let's start to talk about those chapters individually because I, I think, Alexei, it, it's a really fascinating way to get into both the written sources and the oral sources. Um, some of our listeners will, will be familiar with Stephen Kotkin um, speaking Bolshevik or, or maybe the shift into speaking productivist or, or speaking techno-utopian, um, as, as you describe in the book. But in, in getting into your chapter two, when you talk about plastic, you have a fascinating title for the chapter called Time in the 1 to 72 Scale as a Ratio. And then the, the subtitle is The Plastic Historicity of Soviet Models. Um, and you have a quote from Walter Benjamin, which I just want to read because it, it's an interesting riff on the Benjamin Arcades project. You say, it is a grand attempt to overcome the wholly irrational character of the object's mere presence at hand through its integration into a new expressly devised Soviet system, the collection. I'm interested in, in how you came up with the title for this chapter and, and what let's say, drove your interest in, in collection? Because there are so many people, school hobby books, right? School hobby groups, and especially in the, the, the late Soviet period, who become, you know, fascinated with science fiction and reading the Strugatsky brothers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is certainly a, 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 like a marker of the last two generations of the intelligentsia. But I mean, how, how then do you come to this subject about plasticity and, and, and collecting, right? There, mm-hmm. there seems to be almost a fetishizing of these objects that you describe these things. Yeah, I think that's what collections are about. Uh, maybe let me say a couple of words about my method in this book because that explains of how I ran into the idea of writing about scale models. Uh, this book is... Uh, I would say very anthropological in nature because what I'm doing here is that I'm following my sources for various hints and clues that uh, their authors, the authors of those historical uh, sources left for me when they discuss whether directly or in passing the social roles of materiality. And here, of course, uh, Carla Ginsburg's famous work on Marielle Freud and Sherlock Holmes was very important for me, as was uh, calling was the idea of history, right? The right. idea of history as a conjunctural discipline where you go after clues and you are trying to uh, see these historical experience in kind of the wealth, in its entire wealth. So uh, in Benjamin, in his The Arcades Project, there are two types of figures who are interested in objects, who go after like old objects or curious objects or discarded objects. And one is, of course, the flaneur, who was very prominent in social sciences and humanities uh, up until recently. And the second one is collector. So I would compare my own method to that of a flaneur, right? So I go through those historical sources and I look at the curious objects and I'm trying to understand what kind of sense, what meanings they had in the uh, past years. With the collector, it's different. Uh, The collector already has a certain scheme 
a certain structure in mind. And so mm-hmm. when he, and collector usually is a male hobby, especially in the context of high modernism, when the collector is uh, looking after objects, he already knows what kind of objects he is after, right? He's not right. curious about uh, everything. He's yeah. The, yeah. These are sorry. These are my map collectors. They don't want to do anything except collect maps. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's and that's it, right? So maybe you've encountered some of those. Yeah, and so what collector does is that he. I mean, it seems like a passive activity, but the collector does what the collector does is that he co-participates in writing in the writing of history or in the conceptualizing of history by building these collections, by gathering libraries and archives of materials that are relevant to those collections, by presenting, by exhibiting those collections. And those collections, uh, as I make the argument that I make in this chapter, they perform history. So what the reason I was curious about this to the degree that I decided to write a whole chapter uh, was that when I was looking for objects that would perform history, uh, I ran into these uh, collections of uh, scale models that, by the way, were exhibited in very prominent places of late socialism. Uh, the palaces of pioneers, the pavilions at the Vedenha, the old Soviet uh, fair national exhibition, even in the Kremlin. Uh, right. And the reason for that was that they performed this sort of grand technological vision of socialism, right, of uh, Russia being at the cutting edge of historical project. So they played with this uh, kind of idea of technopolitics that our future is intricately connected with the technological progress. And the objects performed this progress. So the objects were able to encapsulate this project and transform history into a visual pleasure for the eyes of educated urban audiences. So there was a lot in this uh, research problem. And there was, again, another reason why it was interesting was that the narratives that you encounter uh, as associated with those collections, they were very nation-oriented. They were, to a certain degree, they were very nationalist, which was in a great contrast with how Soviet students, including during the late Soviet period, learned at school. So at school, they would learn a very standard Marxist-Leninist understanding of history as class struggle, right? As driven by the class conflict. Then after school, they go to those hobby groups, they glue together those models or they make them out of wood and other materials. And in the process, they would be reading different nation-oriented narratives, right? So this is how alternative understandings of history proliferate in the late Soviet context. And this is all sort of triggered by this hobby, by the scale modeling hobby. Yeah, and I see a lot of your technique methodologically as as following from the formalists and this defamiliarization or ostranjenia. Um, but I, I did have a question about the gendering of those spaces, both within the, the environment for hobbyists, 
um, and modeling enthusiasts. And then, of course, in the exhibitionist space for, for museums, um, you've got, for example, the Museum in Petrozavodsk Palace, number two of mm-hmm. children's arts and crafts and the displays. And a lot of these displays, I think you're absolutely correct, are, are nationalist and, and military. Um, the scale models I, I still see of, of planes or, or of aviators, of rocket ships. Um, do, do you see the, the gendering of this national space let's say, persisting well beyond the, the collapse of the Soviet Union? And, and, and how, how do you see that happening? I think so, yeah. Uh, that was another question that I have in this book. So uh, I'm trying to end each chapter by extending my narrative beyond the collapse of the Soviet Union, right, by looking at how those forms of social or historical imagination that emerged in the late Soviet context and were encapsulated in objects, whether they are still around, whether they are still alive in modern Russian culture. And the photo from uh, that you refer to, the photo in the second chapter with present-day collections, it shows that many of those meanings and many of those forms of gendering the space that emerged in the late Soviet context or in the Soviet context in general, they're still around. They are very persistent. So, for instance, these hobby groups, these scale modeling hobby groups that were very uh, popular during the Soviet era, this is still a very kind of prominent extracurricular activity, at least from what I could judge based on my field research in Petrozavodsk uh, in the mid-2010s. Uh, and I think it plays the very same functions as it used in the Soviet era. So it shows this coherent historical development. It shows the military and technological prowess of now Russia, right, before the Soviet Union. Uh, It shows the deep historical roots of um, Russian, again, society and history. Because if you look at those hobbies, they start their hobby with the first ships of uh, the de facto Viking ships, right, that local Slavic communities uh, appropriated to Ladias and uh, some other technological objects. So they, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. They, would, they still play the same functions. I, and I, I wonder if we can move to your, your wood and concrete and iron. Um, I'm thinking about not just the, the concerns of the urban intelligentsia in the, in the Strugatsky world, but beyond and beyond, let's say in, into sort of non-intelligentsia, non-intellectuals, maybe even subaltern. Uh, I'm not sure because you don't really use that word, but I'm wondering how you got at the Yurchak focus on the St. Petersburg urban intellectuals into a different world, as you describe the the world of of wood builders, rural communities, um, people who go to Kiji. Um, you know, I mean, how how did you get, let's say, and especially in the later chapters as well, to the stairwells and 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 the mm-hmm. and the weightlifting subcultures? Because that, that's a it's a really fascinating shift to get out of the pedagogical disciplinary world of officialdom and out of the urban intellectual world of, of city people. How did you make that intervention? Mm-hmm. 
This is what I learned from Russian formalists and in particular from Sergei Tretyakov and from Viktor Sklovsky. Uh, this is why things in my book, they're not just objects of my research, but they also act as a writing technique. So I'm following the biographies of things in the late Soviet context. And by following that, it lets me kind of find completely new uh, historical situations that haven't been addressed in uh, previous scholarship. And that's precisely what Sergei Tretyakov uh, writes in that famous article, The Biography of Object, when he describes how he came to this method, right? How he came to the idea that new socialist literature, instead of producing novels about people, should produce novels about things. He says mm -hmm. that I traveled in China and I was working on a biography of a prominent Chinese revolutionary. And then I started rereading what I wrote, and it was a classic sort of uh, sentimental biography, the genre that we know well from the 19th century literature. And Tretyakov is almost scared because he <laughs> makes this realization right. that he is not the author of his own writing, right? Uh, he almost makes the uh, statement about the death of the author. But Tretyakov is also a very positive, I would not call him positivist. Uh, he has a very positive agenda. He is not deconstructionist. I'll put it this way. And he is looking for a ways to, for new proletarian literature to come up with new meanings and new writing forms. And he says, well, if biographies of people don't work, if they are too rooted in these sort of bourgeois genres, let's try biographies of objects. Let's take, and I think he's using an example of a steam engine, right? Let's look at how iron is produced and coal is mined and how they go through a conveyor. And as we follow the kind of thing in its production and then it's in its circulation in society, we will see the social fabric in very different forms, in the forms that are not uh, <clears throat> mediated by these old genres. And Shklovsky, who is in dialogue with his fellow formalist, he says uh, that it doesn't work, right? That uh, unlike Tretyakov or Zygavertsov, he doesn't believe in an ability of culture to create non-mediated meanings. But what Shklovsky does is that he says that if we turn this from a liability into an asset, if we take things not just as objects in our research, but as, as writing techniques, right? If we let things shape our narratives, this is how we can get new forms of writing. This is how we can get new mm -hmm. <clears throat> new meanings. And this is what I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and how would you say do bodies relate to things? Um, so you've got, um, I, I think I'm absolutely fascinated by your Soviet bodybuilding chapter. Um, and, and, you know, out of Again, outside of the world of palaces of sports, which were which was the Soviet word for for sports complexes, so uh, would you say that that bodybuilders were were stigmatized? Was this an official culture? Why was there worry about about cleanliness and and dirt, or why was there worry about people having you know um, weightlifting gyms in their basements? Um, these are really interesting spaces, I'd say, to study in the seventy in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties um, to get at Soviet subjectivity. Yeah, this is a very interesting story because if you 
as I started researching into this uh, problem or uh, question of Soviet bodybuilding, from what I learned, from what I knew before, uh, I started my own research. I had an impression that, yes, they were stigmatized. Yes, they were marginalized. Yes, they had to, you know, go underground, both figuratively and literally, uh, to work out in the basements of those uh, Khrushchevkas, Soviet apartment blocks. But as I started working on it, I was really surprised to see that, first, there was never a single response to bodybuilding in Soviet public discourse. Some of the journals and magazines, right. uh, they kind of were very negative about it. But some others, like Technica Maladeoje, or like Sportivna Zizn Russia, the sport life of Russia, they kept on publishing workout techniques and advice on how to pump <laughs> your muscles, even during the yeah. kind of uh, worst campaigns uh, against bodybuilding that were spearheaded by Sovietsky sport, by the Soviet sport, the kind of yeah, 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 lead yeah. newspaper. But coming back to your question about uh, the bodies and things, another category which is important for me in this book is affect. And mm. as, again, you probably know, in materiality studies, uh, an argument has been made since recently that things have agency, right? That things uh, should be recognized as social agents in their own worth. And this argument doesn't really work with me. I'm an empiricist. So for me, making a similar statement when describing, you know, historical situation would be questionable simply because I, I don't have the sources to back it up. But from my perspective, and this is one of the arguments that I make in this book, Things, while not having an agency per se, they cause an effective response in people. And this is how they enter the historical scene. So, and affect is very material. Affect is, uh, it works in your body and with your body. So this is, affect is the interface between materiality and between the body in the historical context. If you, for example, take uh, iron, the weightlifting equipment that I'm writing about in that chapter, so it was effective because it was associated with the promise of health and strength, right? And so it made Mm. Soviet teenagers so passionate about working out, even though they could not do it in using the official sport infrastructure. They were discouraged. Bodybuilding was discouraged uh, on the official level, but it was so effective. Iron was so effective, right? It was uh, so important for the teenagers that in in Lubertsy, as I write in that chapter, in a small uh, town, satellite town of Moscow with a population of 165,000 people, in the late 80s, there were several dozens of underground weightlifting gyms. Same thing about for instance, churches, right, and wooden right. boats that I discuss in Chapter 3, they are also effective objects. Yeah. That's a and good example, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, again, so if you were in an old Russian church or if you kind of had a chance to interact with an old wooden boat, you kind of, you know this feeling, they appeal yeah. to you. 
And this is how, again, I make an argument in that book, how people who are Soviet engineers or Soviet architects trained in a kind of modernist, uh, formally school of architecture like Apolovnikov, how they become, how they are called into the social being as heritage enthusiasts or as builders of replica ships in uh, Soviet Karelia. Right. I, I wonder if you might even go further in describing objects with agency as to the point where you describe objects with energy. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also fascinated by your chapter on the television set and the power of the television set. I wonder if, if you might introduce our, our listeners to the role of the television set in the Glasnost area, er, er, era um, epoch and, and talk a little bit about Kashpirovsky and Chumak and their um, popularity. And some people will know it from David Remnick, but uh, you mm-hmm. have a, a slightly different take on on this. You know, the television in in the place of the of the apartment flat or, or the house. Um, could you could you introduce these two um, Kashpirovsky and mm-hmm, Chumak mm-hmm. a little bit about about television and and you know maybe the shift from television or telemania into into the digital universe after the nineties and two thousands. Yeah, so in that chapter, and this is the last chapter of my book, and this is, by the way, a bridge to my current project about the scientific literacy campaign in the Soviet Union. But in that chapter, I'm discussing the Soviet television set and its role in Soviet selfhood and its uh, kind of reorganization of the Soviet domestic interiors and domestic revolution that it triggered in the 1960s. So the television set is interesting in in the Glasnost context, in the context of Perestroika, because it is through television that Soviet society becomes anxious. Uh, it is by broadcasting TV series uh, like uh, Sprut, the uh, mm. octopus, right? Uh, that right. Soviet people kind of, become immersed in this uh, world of conspiracies or it is through the broadcasts of the uh, Congress of Soviets that uh, the, again, Soviet viewers enter the world of open politics, of kind of open dissent, of discussions uh, that challenge the, uh, what used to be uh, common truths. And it is through the television set that they also get a promise of healing, right? When in 1989, so uh, several years, two years into Perestroika, two paranormalists appear on the Soviet television set, Anatoly Kashpirovsky and Alan Chumak, who promise that by sitting in front of the TV set, that by following them, uh, doing their healing seances, Soviet audiences can heal their bodies. And uh, the response to these seances, they were really prominent. So at some point, mm. almost the entire country yeah. was in watching. The, in the hun- hundreds of millions, actually, yeah. right? Really, yeah. So, and the response to this promise is uh, very kind of uh, uneven. There is a very huge loyal audience of people who sit in front of the television sets, who uh, put 
uh, jars of water or some other liquids in front of the television set because Alan Chumak says that he can broadcast his healing energy and the liquids in front of the TV set will absorb it and will uh, become healing, right? It will be healing water or healing uh, cream or whatever. So by consuming them throughout the day, you will extend the healing effects uh, beyond the seance itself. And then there is a group of so like urban intellectuals or people otherwise skeptical about these seances for whom this is a grand failure of Soviet rationality. After mm-hmm. decades of this sort of scientific literacy campaign, after the decades of propaganda right. that tried to confirm the superiority of science over uh, prejudice, over... Uh, Obscur- obscurantism, right? Yes. Isn't that the word? So we're, we're back to Belinsky's letter to Gogol. <laughs> In some ways, yeah, yeah. yeah and right. so uh, what happens, as I argue, is that these sciences, they force people to kind of feel for a short moment a unity with the Soviet national body because that's what television does. The national television does. It kind of connects the entire national space into one network. And then goes this effective reaction of shame, right? So these urban intellectuals, they are ashamed of feeling this national unity. They're ashamed of belonging to the national body of people who believe that sitting in front of the television set would heal them. And uh, hence this effective very negative uh, response to the seances of Kaspirovsky and Chumak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and I wonder if we could shift from there to the 21st century. So, uh, I mean, there's so much there in these chapters. And then I urge your, our listeners to read the book because I, we can't possibly cover it in this amount of time. Um, but I, I want to get your take on, on materiality studies and, and really the, the future of the discipline, both for historians and, and interdisciplinary anthropologists. Um, where do you see studies of Soviet subjectivity going? Um, you, you have a very strong argument here about the overdependence on, on language and perhaps performativity. So how, how can we further research things and, and common, let's say common places or common spaces to use Svetlana Boim's term? What, what, mm-hmm. what, is the, the, what sort of avenues might interested researchers take? I think class and affect might become important categories in our understanding and our research of Soviet subjectivity and selfhood. Uh, The categories that have been neglected in the previous scholarship, but that become kind of increasingly popular uh, these days. And for instance, Jeff Sahadel's recent book on Southern migrants in late Soviet Moscow and Leningrad, it does kind of tackle with the with both of these concepts as well as with the kind of other social categories. Uh, in terms of uh, materiality studies, I think we have very interesting literature that emerged in the past decade or so. So materiality, materiality studies had become a very prominent subfield in our discipline. And uh, of course, the studies of consumption and housing are very yes. well developed, uh, but also kind of food has is becoming a more yeah. and more prominent St- topic. Stephen Stephen Harris and Alison Frank and yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Louis Siegelbaum 
with his current comrades or Natalia Chernyshova, uh, who I think now works in England. She has a wonderful book on the Soviet cons- consumer culture during the Brezhnev era. Uh, Olga Gurova, uh, she has multiple articles and a Russian language book on Soviet consumption. And the book is on Soviet underwear, which is very fascinating. Mm. Uh, yes. Also, heritage architecture and the way how it sort of provokes certain forms of social and historical imagination uh, is also kind of a burgeoning topic with, of course, Stephen Bittner and Catherine Kelly on Moscow and St. Petersburg, respectively. Uh, but also Victoria Donovan just published a new book, Chronicles in Stone, where she's looking at uh, my region, Northwest Russia and at this heritage architecture and heritage monument and how they lead or provoke or trigger the conservative uh, political mobilization in local communities. So I think, yeah, we we are yeah. getting into a very exciting time for materiality studies in, in Russia. And, and do you see um, different ways, let's say, drawing from your work to study second world modernity for lack of a better term you i mean you do have some parallels that you draw um into ukraine and and with other um, countries east germany you mentioned your interest in east germany mm-hmm. um could you talk a little about your your current research mm-hmm. interests and and perhaps what what might draw you out of out of um, soviet russia or out of karelia what where, where do you see yourself going with that well, I mean, this book is not entirely based in Karelia, right? I think chapter, chapter I don't three, want to give that impression, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, chapter three is mainly on the Karelian materials, but not other chapters. Uh, and in general, I think another very interesting uh, direction in uh, in Russian history and in the study of the Second World Modernity, as you uh, suggested, is that uh, we no longer, or at least there is a school uh, of research that no longer looks at it as a separate modernity or as if it was <laughs> no, never modern at all. So I think one of the dominant trends is to look at Soviet history in the global context of modernity. And here we can, of course, remember Michael David Fox. Uh, Jeff Sahadel's book uh, is also kind of an interesting has an interesting comparative aspect between global cities like yeah. Moscow and Leningrad and or, or global his, cities. histories of sport, which I think are history are, of sport. Yeah. You know, another Bob, example, Bob, Bob Edelman and this sort of like, I mean, you even mentioned aerobics, which I think would mm-hmm. be something wonderful to do, not just in a Western context or a Soviet context. Yeah. But, or I mean, the, the status of Western culture in, yeah. uh, in Russia, like Eleonora Gilbert's latest book, to see Paris and die. So right. I, I think that is a very promising avenue of research. And my own contribution uh, comes with this book, but also with my current research project that I'm actually very fascinated about. Let, so, let's hear about it, please. <laughs> so, yes, well, what, what I'm doing what? now as a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard, which gave me a very lucky opportunity not to teach during this strange academic year, uh, I'm looking at the Soviet scientific literacy campaign. 
the huge campaign that was launched in 1947, and I mean, 1947 is not a good year for Soviet Russia, less than two years after, or two years after the end of the Second World War, lots of resources are pumped into the nuclear project. So the reconstruction of the Soviet infrastructure is going slowly, but uh, going, of course. Uh, There is a new kind of wave of political repression going on, and George Orwell is writing his 1984, where one of the slogans of the party in the novel is, uh, hope I get it right, ignorance is strength, right? So he's trying to... Mm-hmm. show the Soviet Union as a country where ignorance is institutionalized. And so in this year, in 1947, the Soviet government launches a huge scientific literacy campaign by mm-hmm. establishing what was initially called an old union, the old union society for dissemination of scientific and political knowledge, what would later become a more laconic name, uh, society Znania, knowledge. That was responsible for communicating advanced form of knowledge to Soviet audiences. And from the very beginning, it had to be an all-encompassing kind of, uh, it had to be an activity that would stretch from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok, right? From small rural settlements to big industrial enterprises. And eventually, I mean, from already during Stalinism, it engaged tens of thousands of uh, members of intelligentsia who would communicate science and political knowledge uh, to their audiences. Eventually, it would employ hundreds of thousands of them. And intelligentsia was very enthusiastic about this project, just as enthusiastic as the political establishment, because I think they shared the same uh, fetishism for scientific and political literacy based on this uh, shortage model uh, or deficit model, the understanding that things don't work in society well because society is illiterate, right? So by giving it more knowledge, we'll make it more literate, and this is how we'll be communism. Stalin spends his last years uh, <laughs> being concerned about the textbook of political economy. And he, uh, on several occasions, he says that uh, this is a very important task for us because we need to spread, in this case, economic literacy, right, among the Soviet population. Uh, And if we won't be able to do it, our cause is lost. So Stalin thinks about uh, social progress in these terms, in terms of uh, literacy, increasing scientific and political and economic literacy, and so does intelligence. Right. That's right. a kind of a very class logic. But if you look, like fast forward several decades, look at the late 1980s, what you see is Kashpirovsky, what you see is Chumak, what you see is Soviet press publishing uh, articles and news about UFOs and poltergeists, hmm. people trying telepathic communications, things like that. So you might think of it as a grand failure of Soviet rationality. I suggest a somewhat different interpretation. I'm, I want to look in this project at communication of science as a medium which was its own message, right? To use McLuhan's iconic phrase. Right. As the, situa- as the uh, institution that produced a huge demand 
for new knowledge in Soviet society that supplied Soviet society with new epistemic forms that produced a new class of professional performance of science. And because of the sheer size, the campaign employed hundreds of thousands of people. In the end, it created a disjunction between the official mandate and the actual practices of Znania society. Yeah, and and I thank you for that because I, I think that there's clearly a lot more to be done on visual culture and digital humanities and, and especially these um, worlds of affect, fantasies of, of desire, um, not like, not, not let's say just in terms of, of content, you know, uh, watching documentaries about the, the generation in the 90s and so forth, but I, I, I really like this focus on materiality and culture and, and the task of defamiliarization, which we've now um, done together for nearly an hour. So I, I want to thank you, um, Alexei, for joining me and for joining us and our listeners today on the New Books Network. Um, thanks so much for, for talking about your book. Um, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. It was a great pleasure. So we've been talking with uh, Professor Alexei Golubyev, who is uh, at the University of Houston. And his new book, which is just out with Cornell University Press, is called The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia, published in 2020. Thanks again for joining us on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel.